Please be seated. It's now time for the children, young people, to go. I think they're all together. Going upstairs to the main um, lounge upstairs, unless you're in crash, in that case you're out. Downstairs lounge. Um, if you want to go to your groups, if other people like to hello to each other, see how everyone is. A few minutes. I did forget to say that the young people, as many of you will know, are doing Alpha at the moment after um, the service over lunchtime. If you want to uh, pray for them, there's a list of the topics that they'll be doing and the weeks that they'll be doing them on, which I'll leave at the front here so you can pick one up and then you can be praying for the young people in their discussions for Alpha. Wonderful. Right, I'd like to invite Rob up, who's going to bring us our reading this morning. reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, And put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, You may have life in his name. Thank you, Rob. We had an interesting discussion over the dinner table the other day. Probably a lot of you won't understand this. It's about football. I know, I like to persevere with my football illustrations, even though half of you don't support it. But... um, 
As you know, Simon supports West Ham. You, you should all probably know. Oh, excellent. Um, and it's trying to indoctrinate our children, which he told me was fine. Um, so they're nearly there. But there was a situation over dinner the other night where um, Joshua suddenly went, Oh, I like that team, that team that, that dresses in white. And um, they're doing really well at the moment. And my friend likes them. And I went, oh, which friend is that? And he told me, I went, oh, you mean Tottenham, don't you? Well, if you're a football fan, you'll know that West Ham and Tottenham. Uh-uh. And, um, and Josh went, yes, I really like them. Well, I looked at Simon. <laughs> He's never been particularly angry before. But I could see this fierce face. And he went, no, you don't. And I said, I was like, oh, come on, hold on, joking, laughing. He went, no, Joshua, you don't like them. He went, I'm serious. And I was like, anyway, I'm serious, you don't, it's West Ham. Well, afterwards, I had a little bit of a chat with Simon, and I said, you know, he's just finding out, he's just developing. Actually, he's probably just liking them because they're winning and West Ham aren't, you know. And so I said, okay, I'll apologise. So he apologised, and then he went and bought Joshua a full West Ham kit. I feel that's more the way to go, isn't it? But, you know, I was telling this story to my sister, and she said, well, Kay, what do you expect? Because you always used to support the person that was winning when you were little. She said, don't you remember that you became a Liverpool fan because they won everything when you were growing up? I said, OK, yeah, well, I suppose you do. And she said, don't you remember when we used to go motor racing with Mum and Dad, we'd all pick a winner as it started, but you would wait until the last lap before picking who you wanted to win. I said, oh, yeah, well, OK, fair enough. Maybe it's coming through the family. But you see, the problem was that I always found it very hard to put my faith in something that I couldn't see happening. So, for instance, West Ham winning anything or, you know, the sports car winning that hadn't even started. And I think a lot of us find it hard to do. It's hard to go out on a limb and put our faith, our belief, in something that we're really not sure of. We don't know whether it will happen. We can have a hope. We could maybe have an expectation that this will happen, or we can anticipate, we can wish for, we can look forward to. We can desperately desire that something will happen. But to put our faith, our full trust, our total confidence in something we haven't yet seen come to pass, well, that can be really hard. And it's a step that a lot of us find almost impossible to take. And so I guess here in the book of John in the Bible, probably many of us have real sympathy with the disciple Thomas, a man who initially failed to witness the resurrection of Jesus when he appeared to the disciples behind those locked doors. Because you see, we can probably understand a little about how Thomas felt. After all, it's not like Thomas was just any old person who happened to be in Jerusalem and around there at that time. It's not like he just turned up and heard about Jesus and the trials and tribulations of this man, this Christ. He wasn't just anyone. He was a follower. He was a believer. He was a man who had been really interested in the teachings of the Son of God. He had committed himself to becoming a disciple, a follower. He'd even professed that he would be willing to face death for Jesus. He was one of those close to following Christ. He knew him. He'd also watched him die. 
And now here he was a couple of days after Jesus' death, having missed only one evening with his friends, being told that Jesus wasn't dead, he was actually alive. Now we don't know why Thomas had been absent on that particular evening. We don't know why he wasn't there when the disciples all met together behind those locked doors. But we do know that he had missed the evening of all evenings. Because it was on that evening, when Thomas wasn't there, that Jesus had appeared. That Jesus had come back from the dead. Not as a ghost, not as a mirage, not as a hallucination, but as Jesus himself. The same Jesus they had all seen die. The same Jesus that they had mourned. The same Jesus that they had all lost. Which is why the other disciples are so excited. And they said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And not only that, but he left the tomb. He walked to the room. He entered through locked doors. He breathed his Holy Spirit upon us. We have seen the Lord, they said. Now, I don't know what they expected Thomas to do when he heard this news. I don't know whether they expected him to jump for joy, join them in celebration and just continue on from where they were. But instead, maybe unsurprisingly, his first response is doubt. Well, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Unless I touch the one you say is Jesus and see the marks of his death, I won't believe he's alive, says Thomas. And is it any wonder, really, that Thomas responded like this? I mean, think about it. When people die, people we really love, we want to see them. We want to see them so badly that sometimes we think we do see them. We think we see them everywhere. They're down the street, they're on the bus, they're in the shops, they're across the park, they're everywhere because they're no longer here. So just because Thomas was faced with ten people who happened to see the same thing isn't exactly convincing evidence for him because there were ten people who were deep in mourning, whose lives were in tatters, whose hopes were shattered. Thomas himself had probably seen Jesus too when he was on his own. Why should he believe them? Why should he take their word for it? And yet because we have the privilege of hindsight, we can read the Bible, we can, we can look at the, the story of the resurrection today. As a church over the centuries, we have had the audacity to rename this man, this follower of Jesus, who failed to believe the words of his peers as Doubting Thomas. And sometimes we paint him in the most negative of ways. Doubting Thomas, the one whose whole life is defined by his doubt. Even though in reality, he was very similar to all the other disciples. I mean, was his doubt any different from those who had doubted alongside him? From Peter, who denied Jesus. From John, who ran to the tomb to check that actually what the women were saying was true. From the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were discussing and didn't recognise Jesus. Is Thomas really any different to the many who have gone before him or who have walked after him? In fact, is Thomas really any different from you or I? I mean, we might not like doubt. We may not admit to doubt. 
we may not be so blunt as Thomas was when he responded to the disciples, but there's one thing we can be certain of, is we all do it. We all doubt at one point or other. And is it such a bad thing anyway to question, to be uncertain, to voice that we can't quite believe something? I mean, as people who seek to follow God, we're not asked to leave our brains at the door, walk into church and blindly agree with everything that's said. If our faith means anything, we're asked to think, we're asked to reason, we're asked to grapple with what we can't quite understand. We're asked to work out God's ways in our lives together. There's a person who um, I've read quite a few of her books and really admire the things she said. Unfortunately, um, she died last week. A person called Rachel Held Evan. She's a Christian. She's 37 years old um, and she died quite suddenly. And she wrote some amazing things. And one of the things she said was this should appear on the screen Christianity isn't meant to simply be believed, it's meant to be lived to be shared, eaten, spoken, and enacted in the presence of other people. Not simply meant to be believed without doubt, but it's meant to be lived. And if Thomas and the disciples are anything to go by, we can only really do this, live our faith out, when we acknowledge that we do doubt, that that's part of us working things out and grappling with our faith, part of us walking with God and developing And having a relationship with Jesus. It's part of how our faith evolves and deepens and grows. Because if we're to follow Jesus authentically in a real way, then no doubt is too big, no doubt is too small for us to voice or grapple with. So what are our doubts, I wonder? What are those things that tug at us and unsettle us? The things we daren't voice, maybe, to other people. I wonder if at times we doubt with Thomas, the resurrection of Jesus. Do we doubt at times that he's here, that he is alive, that he is working? Do we doubt his power in our own lives? Do we doubt his listening ear? Do we doubt his care or his protection? Do we doubt that he has the ability to deal with our problems? Do we doubt at the end of the day that God's actually loving and kind as he says he is? Do we doubt he's compassionate and gracious? Do we doubt that he welcomes all people everywhere? Because if we do, we're in good company. If we do, we're invited, as Thomas did, to bring our doubts to God and to grapple with them. I just want to pause and have a moment maybe where we can reflect on the things that we do struggle with, the things that we do doubt. Not asking us to say them out loud, but maybe we have a time of quiet. Maybe as we sit here we can think about those things that we struggle to believe. They might be things about God or they might be things about God working in our lives, the things that we maybe think it's impossible for him to do. You might want to sometimes... At our church, we do this thing where we put our palms down and then our palms up. If you've come here regularly, you'll know it. We put our palms down and maybe think of all those doubts, those things in our lives that we struggle with. And then in a moment, I'll ask us to raise our palms and we can offer those things to God. He knows them already and he understands them, but we can bring them before him.
So let's just have some quiet. And if you want to, put your palms down on your knees as you think and call to mind all those things that you struggle with. Lord, as we bow before you and offer you our doubts and also our fears, we thank you that you are a wonderful God who can help us to grapple with these things we struggle to believe. We thank you that you're not disappointed or upset when we doubt and we cannot quite get our minds and hearts around what is going on. But you walk with us and you enable us to delve deeper and we ask that in our doubts you would help us to know that you are close to us you would help us to not be afraid to question and look deeper and to grapple and to discuss and to think through and you'd help us to walk with each other in our doubts and fears as well not judging each other for the things that we struggle with, but supporting each other as we walk together and seek to live out this life for you. For we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I read the Bible, one of the things that I notice time and again is that Jesus always chooses to meet people where they're at. If you take a close look at the Bible and look through all the passages, Jesus always starts by meeting the needs in someone's life before anything else. And here in the book of John, he's no different. Because when Thomas professes not to believe the resurrection, and he demands proof of this, Jesus meets him there. He comes back to provide what Thomas needs. And he does this by appearing to the disciples in exactly the same way as he'd done before. He arrives through a locked door to stand among them with the greeting, peace be with you. Only this time it's a week later and Thomas is there with the others in the room. And Jesus approaches him. Now, at this point he could have done anything. He could have turned to Thomas, he could have admonished him, he could have said, how dare you not believe what I had told you would happen. He could have ignored him, not pandering to Thomas's doubts. And as the church has done through the ages, he could have simply branded him a doubter and then left. But of course Jesus doesn't do any of these things, and thank goodness that he doesn't. Instead, he provides the very proof that Thomas had demanded just one week before. He says, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Come on, Thomas, says Jesus. Take a look and touch the proof you need to believe that I am alive. And as Thomas reaches out and realises it is Jesus, he utters the very words that I think he should be remembered for. My Lord and my God. Or in other words, when Thomas realises who Jesus is, he becomes the very first disciple to worship Jesus as God himself. It's an amazing turnaround within one week 
The man who doubted and demanded proof now leads the way in worshipping God among all the other disciples. It must have put a little bit of a smile on Jesus' face, I always think. But what does it mean? What does this encounter in this passage really mean? Does it mean that from this point on, all things are sorted? Does it mean that from this moment of proof, Thomas never doubted again? Does it mean that all that is needed to dispel doubt is an encounter with Jesus, a real encounter? Well, some people, I guess, would say yes. Probably the very same people who brand Thomas to be doubting Thomas. But personally, I would say no. This passage doesn't mean that if we doubt, we failed to encounter Jesus in some way. It doesn't mean that if we doubt in our walk with God, we've somehow failed. Because you see, when Jesus reached out to Thomas and Thomas reached out to Jesus, when Jesus says, stop doubting and believe, he's not commanding Thomas never to doubt again. He's not commanding Thomas to sign up to a statement of faith that he never questions. Instead, I believe that when Jesus reaches out to Thomas and Thomas reaches out to Jesus, Jesus is actually asking Thomas to enter into a new way of living, a new way of life. Perhaps a better translation for Jesus' words, stop doubting and believe, is do not become unbelieving, but believing. Or in other words, when Jesus appears to Thomas in the locked room, he's not asking him to start living a life that is ultimately governed by never doubting, but one that is ultimately governed by a belief in God. Do not become unbelieving, but believing. A new way of life. Not a life that doesn't doubt, but a life that can cope with doubt. So that when Thomas does doubt, and he will, he has someone who he can turn to in his doubt, who he can question and talk to and and ask. Douglas Guthrie, who's a commentator on um, the books of the Bible, says this, Faith, then, is more a matter of relationship than of creed. Or if you like, faith is not so much about what we sign up to believe, but about who we believe in. So ultimately, faith is not a question of if we believe hard enough, it's going to happen. But rather, if we choose a life of believing in Jesus, then whatever happens... However we feel, whatever doubts we have, that relationship will govern the way we deal with them. And therefore, the life, the power, the love of God is available to us in our belief and in our doubt. Do not become unbelieving, but believing. This is the life that Thomas stepped into. A new relationship that enabled him to doubt and be held by God in those doubts. And this is the way of life that Jesus offers to us as well, after Easter, as we remember and as we worship him. As he says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As I sometimes do, I have a little activity we can use as a response, if you'd wish. There's some, some soil. It looks a bit messy, but there's spoons, so you don't have to touch the soil. There's a little bit of a... Oh, dear. A pot, oh, I should really have done this beforehand. Some pots. 
that don't come apart, so that's going to work well. Hmm. How do you do this at home? I bet Simon's having the same trouble upstairs. <gasps> some pots, and there's some mustard seeds, because we only need faith as big as a mustard seed. Um, and I'd like to invite you during the next song, see, this is going to be tricky, to come up, try and get a pot, put a bit of soil in, sprinkle a few mustard seeds on top, and then when you get home, you can water them as a reminder of the tiny amount of faith that is needed as we follow God in our doubts and in our belief. So let's stand together as we sing the next song. And I invite you to come up, if you'd wish, to take some of these seeds away with you.